Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales-based true crime show that looks to bring for your listening cases that are obscure, often long forgotten ones, that I've looked into the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Bringing you these each time around is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved assistant, Peaks, is here lying on the spare bed right next to me. And you kind lot listening in are the reason that I do what I do, what makes the show happen. It's as fantastic as it always is having you joining me here today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And as the episode finds you, then I do hope you and yours are all good, you're all safe and you're all well. So not too much waffle to begin this week, as going forward I want to get down to the nitty gritty as swiftly as I possibly can in the episodes, although I may waffle on somewhat post case. Who knows just yet, the way I think is if there's bollocks to talk then rest assured bollocks I shall spout. I will of course say my traditional thank you to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, that won't change at all, with shout outs this time around going out to Margaret Muzakis Ford, Chantelle Gautier, Samantha Dunn and Vicky Snowball, plus Lindsay Noon, Billie Jean Guest and Lynn Holland who've each opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much guys, it's so very kind of you to do so. Now, stuff has gone out to some of you that will hopefully be winging its way through your doors soon, and meanwhile I do hope that you all have had a chance to at least make a start on some of the unreleased bonus episodes that being a Patreon supporter brings to you. If like this wonderful lot you'd like to support the show yourselves and get to hear bonus tales such as The Mystery of Leatham Street or Disfigured, perhaps Maths, Misunderstandings and Murder or The Cannibal and the Cowboy to name just a few of them, then if titles such as these intrigue you or you even want some show goodies from me, then it's very simple to do and it's so cheap you don't even have to buy it a drink first. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there or there's a clickable link in the episode show notes each and every time around that takes you right to the show's page and you can be sorted with it quick as a flash. Now we shall begin our tales this time around following a short word from the episode sponsors, who are once again better help. The past year has been a bloody awful one for everybody, hasn't it? And although we may be coming through it, a lot of us may still have all sorts going on in our lives that are worrying or stressing us out and at times, life can be proper tough and trying, can't it? So if there is something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or it's interfering with your happiness, then this is where better help comes in and can help you. Now it isn't self-help, I must clarify that. What better help does is assesses whatever issues that you may be facing and then selects a licensed professional therapist from the broad range of expertise it has available. One that best suits your needs, and is matched to you for professional counselling. BetterHelp has specialists dealing in all sorts of issues, from relationship issues right through to things such as sleeping troubles, some of which you might not find locally available to you, and in less than 24 hours, you can start communicating in a private and confidential online environment with a personal counsellor that you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, who you can message anytime you wish, and from whom you'll get timely responses and thoughtful feedback. It's also a service that's available worldwide and at a much more affordable rate than any traditional offline counselling, with even the offer of financial aid available to help for the use of the service should you need it. I want you to start living a happier life today. 
As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. So I've put this series multi-episode arc back for a week or two as I was wanting to do some standalone cases for a few weeks run on the bounce because half of this series so far I've realised has either been two or three part tales. It's given me a chance to get some extra research in for the arc though this has which I've done so by reaching out to a friend of the show to assist me with which all shall be revealed soon so watch this space. So in past weeks we've looked at the horrific case of arsonist Richard Fielding, we've looked at some unsolved cases from Greater Manchester, and this time around I have another pair of tales for you concerning Murder Most Horrid. I earmarked each tale presented here months ago for inclusion on the show at some point, and as I do like a chop and a change around to the schedule, as I'm sure you'll know, it got to this week and I looked at each again, this time in closer detail, and I swear this was unplanned, it's just the most random of coincidences. There were similar enough shades in each tale that I thought, boom, that's an episode that. And hopefully, you'll see what I mean as we go along. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, folks, please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled spurned herns so for our first tale of the episode then we're off somewhere we visited in a two-part episode last series on the show the county of berkshire in the southeast of the uk a few stats about berkshire include that it's home to places of note such as windsor castle or the living rainforest and eton college it's home to the national trust's oldest tree the 2,500-year-old Anchorwick U near Raysbury, and its town of Reading is the largest in the UK to not have city status. Notable people to hail from the Berkshire area include actress Kate Winslet, the last original dragon from Dragon's Den, Peter Jones, holier-than-now television human bear-baiter Jeremy Kyle, and one-hit wonder, the one and only Chesney Hawks. Do you see what I did there? And in keeping with our true crime theme that's developed over the past couple of episodes, it's in Berkshire also, of course, that Broadmoor Secure Hospital is located, that is, or has been home to several delightful individuals that we've met in the past here on The Enthusiasts. Erskine, Napper and Peter Bryan are currently there, while Graeme Young and Barry Williams were also there during their lifetimes, all tales which are available in the back catalogue of the show. We head back to the latter months of 1971 to begin. We're at the closing time of 5.30pm on Monday 8th of November of that year. Hardware store owner Robert Renaker locked up his Slough Town Centre shop and instead of heading for home as he usually would, instead drove some 8 miles to Ascot Police Station, a woodland route that took him through Windsor Great Park. He was headed to the police station primarily because of an uneasy feeling that he'd had for the best part of that afternoon following Patrick Jackson, a Slough Fire sub-officer and part-time employee of Roberts, having failed to return to the shop after delivering a batch of orders that he'd taken out that morning. 
It was particularly strange, Robert thought, because it was most unlike the reliable Patrick to not return to the shop to collect and complete further deliveries, and he knew Patrick was out delivering, as he had himself earlier that afternoon seen Jackson's Ford Thames van parked outside a pair of derelict cottages, known as Holly Cottages, on Forest Road in Winkfield, a village on the edge of Windsor Forest between Slough and Acton. It was actually to Holly Cottages that Patrick had had his first delivery of the day, an order of £56 of nails for a Mr Farnsworth, and for the van to still be there some hours later, but with no sign of Patrick at the property, Robert had been so concerned that something had happened that he decided his only course of action was to report him as missing to police. And upon his arrival at the police station, he found that he was not the only one concerned either for Patrick's 35-year-old wife Pearl was there at the same time, explaining to the on-duty desk sergeant that her husband had not returned home for lunch that day as usual, and was now well overdue for supper. By 7.40pm then, Robert and Pearl, accompanied by police constables Robert Watchorn and Keith Greenaway, were heading from Ascot Nick back down to where Robert had earlier that afternoon seen Patrick's van parked in Winkfield, Holly Cottages. It was an area that police kept a regular watch upon because the properties had been derelict for some two years up to that point and as a result was a favoured haunt for children to play in or even intruders to gain access for whatever reasons, the downstairs rear windows and side doors being relatively easy to force which had been done more than once. As they rounded the corner before them, sure enough Patrick Jackson's van was still parked on the grass verge where Robert had seen it earlier but there was a sight that gave all four much more pressing cause for alarm, as they could see thick black smoke billowing from the building. The gate was wide open and the front door to the property also, through which all four could see that the building was ablaze. Flames leapt from the roof as PC Watchorn bravely entered the hall and front room of the property, almost choking on the acrid smoke. Although the ceiling and staircase of the property were alight, he quickly groped his way up through the smoke and almost on all fours made his way along the landing, the heat so intense that PC Watchorn was forced to shield his face with his hands and arms. The room directly ahead of him was also ablaze, but not yet as thoroughly as the downstairs, and making his way to the doorway, through the smoke and his own stinging eyes, PC Watchorn was met with a chilling sight. Almost at his own feet, he could make out at first some charred feet, ankles and shins, bound together with wire. His eyes travelling along, he could then make out the rest of the severely burned body, of course, what was left of it, encased in a blackened metal frame. As he looked downwards in horror, part of the ceiling behind him collapsed, and sensing that it was too dangerous for him to remain inside any longer, he swiftly made his way back downstairs and outside, where he told his colleague that aside from the fire brigade attending, they would also require CID to be present, because it was the scene of a murder. Just ten minutes later, fire officers were at the scene and had begun extinguishing the blaze, shortly afterwards bringing out the blackened corpse in a salvage sheet, where it was then conveyed to nearby Bracknell Mortuary, awaiting a full post-mortem by Home Office pathologist, Dr Arthur Keith Mant. Before carrying out the post-mortem, however, 
Dr. Mant had himself driven to Holly Cottages to examine the scene for himself by torchlight, once it had been made safe to do so of course, and found the walls and floor of the downstairs room surprisingly not too severely damaged by the fire, heavily splashed with blood staining. Six feet up one of the walls, above a particularly heavy concentration of blood, a matted piece of hair and scalp was found, adhering to the wall in gore. Pretty bloody grim, eh? Following his post-mortem examination, which was undertaken at Guy's Hospital in London, Dr. Mant reported that the body, which was confirmed by dental records to have been as suspected that of 41-year-old Patrick Jackson, had been severely burned in the fire, which he determined had been slowly burning for some considerable time, and as a result, had been almost completely carbonised. The incineration had detached or completely destroyed the arms, legs, foot, for one of them was missing and the other had fallen off when the body was removed, and ribs, and that many of the internal organs had either melted, hemorrhaged or coagulated in the extreme heat. Most of the skull of the body remained, and what was left revealed fractures to its base, although Dr. Mant was unable to say with any certainty if these had been caused by blows from a hammer-like weapon or by the intense heat. Remnants of the wire used to truss the legs together had remained on the body, fused into it, and what he was able to remove, he identified as being a length of clothesline. Even before Dr. Mant had undertaken his post-mortem, however, the investigation was moving at a rapid pace, and just over an hour after the blaze had been discovered, following a conversation with the deeply upset Pearl Jackson, police were knocking on the door of a flat at number 40 Kingswood House on Slough's Farnham Road, which belonged to a 39-year-old self-employed builder named Ronald Edward Hearn. The officers on the doorstep told Hearn when he'd answered the door that they were inquiring about a Mr. Patrick Jackson and that he might be able to help shed some light on his disappearance because they understood that Hearn knew him well. After all, Patrick Jackson was his former brother-in-law. Hearn, who had answered the door in a dressing gown, told officers that he'd been in bed all of that day as a result of a slipped disc, but officers were immediately drawn to the fact that he had very recent scratches on his face, covering his upper lip and his arms. Asking him what had happened to cause them, Hearn told them, Oh, an old stray dog jumped up at me last night. It sits out the back here, and I went to the fridge to get it some meat. Now when it was pointed out that anyone who wasn't this side of a gorilla mentally would have protected themselves from being scratched by covering their face with their hands, and his hands weren't scratched, Hearn replied, Oh, well, it happened all so quickly. Now, the reason police had been straight around to Hearn's property anyway was that almost immediately, police had discovered that there was one person above anyone else who may have had cause to wish harm upon Patrick Jackson, his former brother-in-law, Ronald Hearn, as there was bad blood between them because for the previous six years, Ronald Hearn and Patrick's wife, Pearl, had been involved in an on-off affair. The plot thickens. Asking him to confirm the claim that he'd been involved in an affair with Pearl Jackson, Hearn admitted that he formerly had been yes, but claimed that the affair had finished more than two years beforehand. 
it had led to his own marriage to Patrick's sister Jean breaking up in 1970 and Pearl Jackson being named in the divorce proceedings. But since then, Hearn claimed, he and Patrick had shaken hands and made it up when the affair had ended for good. Changing tack, the officers then asked Hearn when he'd last used his car, a red Viva model registration number BBH934F that was parked outside, to which Hearn replied that he hadn't driven it since the previous Tuesday. He claimed that no one else had used it during that time frame either, but feigned confusion when police asked him that if that were true, how he could then account for the car engine still being warm, as they checked it even before knocking on the door, and that it had very recently been driven. Hearn come out with some old nonsense in response about him thinking that they'd meant where the car was the previous Tuesday, when he was the one who'd even brought the day up. So thinking by this time that Hearn had something clearly to hide, he was cautioned and arrested, before officers made an examination of several items of clothing that he had strewn about the flat. A parka jacket, trousers and pair of shoes were found, each of which showed signs of being very recently cleaned and were still damp to the touch, and which were seized for examination purposes, alongside several other items of clothing. Also found was a scrap of paper that bore the name Farnsworth, printed in blue biro, alongside several biblical passage references. Hearn was then conveyed to Bracknell Police Station, where he was interviewed again under caution by Detective Chief Inspector Peter East. He admitted during this interview that he had spoken to Pearl Jackson earlier that day, after she'd rung him to say that her husband had not come home from work that lunchtime or that evening, and once again repeated his claim that the two men had shaken hands following the cessation of Hearn and Pearl's affair, although they tended to avoid one another going forward from this. However, he still felt very deeply for Pearl and had not wanted to stop seeing her, and to this extent, Pearl Jackson had even taken out an injunction against Hearn in an attempt to get him to stop pestering her. However, Hearn claimed, I quote, That was for his benefit, to make it look as though she no longer wanted me. Who loves you, eh? By now, following the circumstantial evidence discovered during the search of Hearn's flat and information that they'd received from a number of eyewitnesses, detectives were convinced that, seeing Patrick as an obstacle to him being with the woman that he was smitten with, Hearn had lured Patrick Jackson to the remote, derelict Holly Cottages with the intention of murder. When this was put to him, he denied being the caller who had used the name Farnsworth to order some 56 pounds of nails from Renaker's hardware store in order to lure Patrick to the remote cottages, knowing that it would be him who delivered them. Indeed, he claimed to Detective Chief Inspector East that he hadn't been anywhere near the Winkfield area for at least the past two weeks. At this point in the interview, however, Hearn buried his head in his hands and became silent for long periods, babbling incoherently when he did speak. He claimed that he himself was reportedly a Mormon elder, and both his wife and son, who had come to work as a builder with him, were highly religious. Hearn rambled on, This will kill him, he looks up to me, he's a good boy, how do you keep your mind together? Bloody mad, wasn't it? What can I do with my mind when it goes haywire? I used to take my kids to Sunday school. I even wanted to bring a Bible in here with me. If I hit him, does it matter? Does it matter? 
nonsense like that, eh? By this time, Hearn was lathered in sweat and was reportedly almost delirious and began telling an almost incoherent story, a markedly different one from the guff that he'd initially spouted. Through his ramblings about God and his kids, he claimed that he had earlier that morning received a telephone call from a man named Mr Farnsworth, which explained the name on the scrap of paper found in his flat, and who had asked him to quote for repairs at Holly Cottages in Winkfield, which he'd just bought. Upon heading there that afternoon, he was surprised to see instead his former brother-in-law already there, and who began ranting and raving about killing his, I quote, filthy whore of a wife. He said that Jackson had waved a square hammer at him, which he thought he was going to smash him with, and the next thing he remembered, he claimed, Jackson was lying on the ground. Then I went for a walk out in the sunshine. I threw the hammer out of the car window, Hearn said. Hearn also now admitted to officers that far from his and Pearl's affair being long since ended, he'd actually had sex with Mrs Jackson at her home the previous Tuesday evening, six days before the murder, when her husband was working a rostered night shift. The resulting conversation, in part, was as follows. Did you try and see her last Thursday or Friday? asked DCI East. Hearn replied, no, I rang her on Sunday instead. What did you talk about when you rang her on Sunday? I bought her a gold locket and she was worried about it and said she'd leave her outside the door as Patrick would know it was from me. Did you go into the house? No, she didn't want me to. The husband was suspicious. No, he just knew. Then changing tack, the detective asked Hearn, Did you order some nails from Renekers? I can't say. I put it to you that you did phone them and you ordered nails. I don't know. If you didn't ring Renekers, then how did you know Patrick Jackson would be at Holly Cottages? Because I saw his van outside. Later that morning, officers took Hearn back down to the Winkfield area to see if they could locate this hammer that he claimed to have abandoned, but it was never found. What was instead discovered was a large piece of blood-stained concrete that had been found inside the door of the cottages, and it was thought that this had been the actual murder weapon. Hearn had also asked police if he himself could visit Holly Cottages, telling them, I quote, I've been thinking, I wonder if it would help my memory if I went to the cottages. I don't really want to go because of the awful thing that happened, but if I go back again, it might help me as well as you. So sure enough, he was taken along there by DCI East and two other uniformed officers, but upon arrival, Hearn would not enter the property any further than the doorway where he stood quietly staring around. Hearn became transfixed by the large portion of blood that was still clearly visible on the damaged wall of the front room and pointing to a section nearby to this, told the officers in a quiet voice, that's it, he was standing right there. As DCI East tried to ascertain further exactly how Jackson had been stood, pretending to be him and enacting swinging a hammer in his hand, Hearn said quietly, almost to himself. I must have gone bloody berserk. How could I do such a thing? Can we get out of this place? On Thursday the 11th of November 1971, handcuffed to a police officer, Ronald Hearn appeared before magistrates in Bracknell, charged with the murder of Patrick Jackson. 
but during the two-minute hearing, Hearn, looking dishevelled and unshaven, spoke only to confirm his name and address. He was then remanded in custody by lead magistrate Lady Celia Alexander and was taken to Winchester Prison to await trial. Two weeks after the murder, Fire Officer Patrick Jackson was given a funeral that was best described as being fit for a hero. His coffin draped in a Union Jack flag, on top of which lay Jackson's helmet and belt, it was borne on a turntable ladder, flanked by a procession of 12 fire service and private vehicles that set off from the home of the deceased, a spacious bungalow called Belmont on Slough's Britwell estate. As the procession passed Slough Fire Station, where the deceased had been a sub-officer, the station's alarm bells could be heard ringing out in a final 30-second tribute to the dead man, before arrival at St Anthony's Church, where six of his colleagues from Slough Fire Station's Blue Watch carried his coffin from the ladder and inside, followed by the mourners of the cortege, headed by his wife Pearl and the couple's two children, 13-year-old Peter and 10-year-old Anne. Now all funerals are sad occasions of course, but there's always a certain extra amount of somberness and ceremony, for want of a better word, with funerals such as these I find. I want to describe it as service funerals that I can testify to having attended and even taken part in a couple of military ones. So I can only imagine that for as sad an occasion as it was for the Jackson family, there must have been an element of pride in it as well, even just a small one. Ronald Hearn appeared at Reading Crown Court on Thursday the 9th of March 1972, charged with the murder of Patrick Jackson, where, before presiding Mr Justice Thesiger, he pleaded not guilty to murder on the grounds of self-defence. Mr Ian Percival QC, prosecuting, told the court, The case for the Crown is that Jackson was killed as a result of a number of severe blows with a piece of cement. The accused had had personal differences with Mr Jackson. Hearn lured him to the place of his death and there beat him to death with a lump of cement and then went to considerable pains to destroy his body by fire. Jackson was a fire brigade officer who also worked for a man called Renaker who was an ironmonger in Slough. Mr Jackson drove a delivery van for Mr Renaker and Hearn was married to the sister of the deceased but he had had an affair with Mrs Jackson and he had been divorced by his own wife. Mr Percival furthered that Jackson had been lured to his death, I quote, on a fool's errand, after Robert Renaker had received an order for 56 pounds of nails from a Mr Farnsworth in a telephone call on the Saturday morning, asking for them specifically to be delivered to Holly Cottages in Winkfield on the Monday morning. Farnsworth had once again called first thing on the Monday to ensure that they would be being delivered that day and sure enough when he'd arrived for work at Renaker's at 9.40am following finishing his night shift just 40 minutes beforehand Patrick Jackson had shortly afterwards driven to Holly Cottages to deliver these but had found the property deserted. He subsequently left in his van complete with the order of nails and continued with his other deliveries. Now with his shift due to end at 2.30pm that afternoon, he had tried at lunchtime once again to re-deliver the nails and so had returned to the cottages and had met his death there. Ian Percival continued, 
It was about 7.40pm when the police arrived at the cottages with Mr Renaker and they found them burning. There was a lot of smoke inside. One policeman who managed to enter crawled upstairs and on the floor of a room that seemed to be the seat of the fire, he saw the body of a man lying on his back with his ankles bound by wire. Firefighter David May, who was one of the crews called to the blaze, told the court how he'd seen flames coming from the roof at the back before seeing the body for himself. I went upstairs and there was a body in the room at the back. There appeared to be household electric flecks wound around the body from below the knees to the middle of the chest. There was a metal frame around the head area of the body. I saw no clothing on it and as we lifted it up, the left foot became detached. Never forget that, would you? Next given evidence, pathologist Dr Arthur Keith Mant told the court of his visit to the cottage on the night of the fire and his subsequent post-mortem on the remains of Patrick Jackson. There was a large pool of blood in the entrance hall. In the room underneath the room where the fire was, I found a charred left hand and wrist. Parts of the body were missing or burned to charcoal and the top of the head was missing. The body had been burning for some hours. The man was dead when he was exposed to the fire. He'd received severe head injuries, but I found no other injuries on the body. And what was the possible motive? Jealousy. The court then heard that Pearl Jackson and Hearn had been lovers for six years, and on two occasions during this had even lived together. She'd even been cited in Hearn's divorce from his wife Jean the previous year. Over the years she'd received many presents from Hearn, both wanted and unwanted ones, and when the affair had ended, Hearn had been unwilling to let it go, and had indeed tried forcing his attentions upon her. However, Mr Percival told the court, In the weeks preceding the killing of Jackson, that association had come to life again, however. Pearl Jackson indeed admitted to the court when she gave evidence that she and Hearn had had sex less than a week before the murder on the previous Tuesday, although she claimed she had made it crystal clear to Hearn at the time that it was a one-off and their affair was long over, which it didn't really sound like, did it? But there you go. She also told the court of how the previous year, in an attempt to repair her marriage and distance herself from Hearn, she'd rebuffed several gifts that Hearn had sent her and had ignored his telephone calls, which had turned him nasty. She went on to describe an occasion late the previous year, when late one night when her husband was on a night shift, Hearn had come over to the Jackson house and had opened a downstairs window. Hearing a noise, Pearl had made her way downstairs to see what was happening, and finding Hearn in the kitchen, claimed he had then grabbed her by the throat and slammed her up against the wall, threatening her life if she didn't carry on with their affair, which kind of defeats the purpose of the request, doesn't it really? It was only the telephone ringing that caused him to stop and release his grip on her. Listening to this in the dock, Hearn sobbed, shaking his head. The court then heard from witnesses who had seen the car of the accused parked at various places and times around the Winkfield area on the day of the murder. Builder Tom McLeod, who was an employee of Hearn's, told the court on the second day of the trial that at lunchtime on the day of the murder, he saw a distinctive car parked about a mile from Holly Cottages. He claimed, Parked near the betting shop, I saw a red Viva Estate 
which I thought was Mr. Hearn's car. It was the same model and was damaged in the same way. I wasn't definitely sure and I didn't know the number. When McLeod had passed back the same way on his way back to work, 30 minutes later at 1.30pm, the vehicle was still there, but by five hours later it had moved a lot closer to Holly Cottages. Farmer Harold Bowyer told the court that sometime between 6 and 7pm on the evening of the murder, by which time the fire must have already been burning, he'd noticed a car parked by the gate of neighbouring Winkfield Road Farm. He said, I thought it might be a customer, so I had a look around, but I saw no one. I wrote the number down and shone a torch on the car, but I'm afraid I didn't know what make it was. Now the number of the vehicle he had written down was BBH934F, which corresponded to a Red Viva estate registered to one Ronald Hearn. Mr Bowyer continued that he had then gone back in, but shortly afterwards had heard a noise outside and had gone out to see what it was, finding a man closing the back of the car. He told the court, I said, trouble mate, and he replied, no, I just had to let the car stand for a bit. Then he got in and drove off in the direction of Winkfield Road. Aside to his car being seen then by two reliable witnesses, a blood-stained watch identified as belonging to Hearn had also been found in the garden of Holly Cottages in a subsequent search the day after the murder. There was also the damp clothing that he'd very recently cleaned when police came to speak to him, the scrap of paper with Farnsworth written on it, and Hearn's very telling interview at Bracknell Police Station, all of which was putting him so far up shit creek that he'd have to quarantine before coming back. On day four of the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Peter East took the stand, where he then told the court of Hearn's rambling interview. He described, Hearn said he found Mr Jackson's wife, Mrs Pearl Jackson, very attractive. Hearn said he was really keen on Mrs Jackson, and he said he had no trouble with Mr. Jackson. Hearn had then buried his head in his hands and said, When you die, the trouble starts. My wife is religious, this will kill her. She knows what happens in the next world. Who would want to know you when you do a thing like that? This will kill my boy, he's a religious boy. How do you keep your mind together? What can I do when my mind goes haywire? If I hit him, does it matter? DCI East furthered Hearn had then told him that he remembered walking down a road at Winkfield and then walking in a door and seeing Jackson. Hearn had then added, He was shouting about how he was going to get rid of her. I knew he meant his wife. He was swinging a square hammer. He was raving and shouting, No good filthy whore. I thought he was going to cut her throat. I grabbed the hammer and I got the hammer off him. I was so upset about what he'd said about his wife, I can't remember what I did with it, but I obviously must have struck him with it. It was the way he was hollering, he was just mad as hell. Something in me just snapped, I don't know what. I next remember seeing him upstairs, he was lying down. I have no idea how he got up there. DCI East then told the court how Hearn had accompanied officers to Holly Cottages, saying, he looked at the blood-stained wall and floor and said, I must have gone bloody berserk. How could I do such a thing? 
On the fifth day of the trial, Wednesday the 15th of March, a juror named Dennis Richmond was brought to the attention of the trial judge after he had passed what is reported as religious papers to defence QC Kenneth Jones, asking them to be passed on to the defendant Hearn, whose soul he was concerned for. Instead, the defence requested that this juror be dismissed, calling out the request for its irregularity. Mr Justice Thesiger agreed, and instead decided to proceed with just the remaining 11 members of the jury, nine men and two women, admonishing Richmond as he apologised to the court from the jury box before leaving. Despite a number of witnesses telling the court that they'd seen Hearn's car parked at various points in Winkfield in the afternoon and evening of the murder, and the circumstantial evidence, as we've heard, when he came to give evidence on his own behalf, Hearn maintained the story that he'd told police that at some time between 9 and 10 o'clock that morning, he'd been at home where he'd received a telephone call from a man called Farnsworth, who had asked him to give a quote for building repairs to two cottages in Winkfield that he'd just bought. I did not recognise the voice of the man calling himself Farnsworth as Mr Jackson's voice, he told the court. Hearn claimed that he'd gone there as arranged, needing the work, and was shocked to find his former brother-in-law waiting there, who I quote, did not seem surprised to see me, Hearn had claimed. He furthered, he was swinging a hammer in his hand, shouting and raving about what he was going to do to her. I tried to get the hammer off him, and that's all I know. The next thing I remember is being in bed, and it was still light. It's funny how these people can only selectively remember certain things, isn't it? On the seventh day of the trial, on the afternoon of Friday the 17th of March 1972, it took the remaining jurors just under three hours to decide unanimously that Ronald Hearn was guilty of murder. Hearn blinked heavily two or three times and said nothing as he then had the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment passed upon him. Addressing the court, Mr Justice Thesiger told them, In my view, this was a premeditated murder and it was done for the sake of making somebody a widow. I think the accused took very great trouble to plan it, and afterwards to cover up the tracks. It is not a case in which I would have recommended remission of the capital sentence in the days when it was passed. My recommendation to the Secretary of State is that the accused should not be released in view of the nature of the offence for a period of 15 years. That is equivalent, of course, having regards to the periods of remission to a 22 and a half year sentence. This has been one of the most interesting cases involving circumstantial evidence that I have ever come across, he added. Now Ronald Hearn was never to admit further details about the crime or why he'd lured and then killed Patrick Jackson throughout his years of incarceration, but it can only be surmised that so besotted was he with Pearl Jackson, wanting their affair to continue, that he believed that if Patrick was gone for good, never coming back, then she'd automatically be free to be with him and would be. And perhaps she wasn't as emphatic that the affair was over herself really, for why else would she still be having sex with Hearn less than a week before the murder? There was never any suggestion that perhaps Pearl Jackson had asked Hearn to kill her husband, and the reason for them having sex, yet her claiming the affair was over, has never been explained. Did this act of intimacy give Hearn renewed hope then, and desperate to keep Pearl, 
headed down a very dark path that he couldn't come back from. It's an old motive, isn't it? How many times have we heard tales of someone who's so besotted with another that all rational thought leaves their minds, that person propagating under their skin, and sometimes to the point where they commit the most atrocious of crimes, all in the name of love, which makes sense to them, but is completely abhorrent to us. Well, I've got another example here for you, and one that features the strangest coincidence that I guarantee was just that, that helped form the episode title. For our second tale, we skip forward several years and head up to the county of Cumbria in the northwest of England. We have, of course, been here before on the show, in the Ladies of the Lake episodes from a couple of series back, as well as a brief trip there in the most recent Patreon episode, The Cannibal and the Cowboy. So what to say about Cumbria? Well, it's where the Lake District is, of course. England's top five highest peaks can be found there. It has arguably the best views in the UK there because it is proper stunning. And points of interest concerning the area. George Washington's Nan is buried there in Whitehaven. The Keswick Pencil Museum has reportedly the world's largest colouring pencil at 8 metres long, which I thought it would be bigger really, but you still couldn't bloody colour with it, could you? The World Gurning Championships are held each year in Egremont, where it's taken so seriously that its most famous winner, Peter Jackman, even had all of his teeth removed so he could manipulate his face better when defending his title, which is proper bloody dedication that, isn't it, eh? Roy Castle will be singing about that all over. And my favourite stat about it is that at a pub in Santon Bridge, you can try to become the world's biggest liar in a competition that's held there annually. I know, yeah. How you judge things like this boggles my mind, like the bloody World Air Guitar Championships. How do you even, like, judge or disqualify someone from that? And how gutted are you if you're the runner-up of something like that, thinking, oh, I didn't bring me A game there. Personally, I think it's a load of old bollocks myself, but if it keeps people happy, hey, who am I to say anything? Fill your boots. Before we get to Cumbria in this tale, however, we're off first to the Lancashire town of Rortonstall, where in 1977, 50-year-old furniture factory owner Michael Hearn, I don't think he's any relation to Ronald, it's just coincidental that the surnames were the exact same, was living in relative luxury with his teenage daughter Jane. And it was about this same time also that Jane became friends with a 16-year-old girl named Michelle Joyce Page, who was known as Shelley to her friends, and who had just moved to the area. An attractive yet troubled girl, Shelley's father had also recently died, leaving her in need of both solace in her grief, as well as a place to live. So feeling some sympathy for the girl, the kind-hearted Michael Hearn invited her to live with him and his daughter in the position of their housekeeper, offering her a reasonable wage for carrying out the day-to-day chores and upkeep of their home. And for a while, things were great as this and reasonably straightforward, but before long had passed, the looks between Michael and Shelley became ever-lingering, and before long, he'd become besotted with the teenage girl, and she quickly became his lover, the genuine friendship both had initially felt growing into something more. Although Shelley soon came to enjoy living in the lap of luxury, having clothes bought for her, holidays, an expensive car, and a sugar daddy buying her pretty much whatever she wanted, she became ever increasingly aware of the age difference between the two. As she was still growing up herself really, 
Shelley needed the company of people her own age, and so began going out and making new friends, which led to her indulging in several affairs with other younger men, many of them even married, and all of them to the knowledge of Michael Hearn. Although every one of these affairs caused him great heartache and mental anguish, Hearn would simply wait patiently for each of them to end, knowing that they would do shortly, the full-on burning passions each were launched into with would quickly burn themselves out, and consoled himself with the belief that at least he had the advantage of wealth, age and maturity on his side, and Shelley would always each evening come home to him. But the numeracy of these affairs soon began to have a greater cost than just emotional scarring, for, besotted with Shelley as we've said, Hearn began neglecting his business, happy to use up his business capital to simply shower Shelley with expensive gifts and treats, but not putting in the hard work and shrewd decision making that had gotten him to that position in the first place. An example of how little interest he took in his business became evident when in 1982 he was conned out of £60,000 by fraudsters, which reportedly the normally astute and switched on Hearn would have seen coming a mile off, and following this, Shelley had persuaded him to put his factory up for sale, which he did so, buying a pig farm up in Cumbria and moving up to the county as a result. But far from being happier than the proverbial pig in shit after doing this, the venture failed badly, primarily because Hearn was more of a collar and tie man than someone wading through pig shit with wellies on. Selling the farm just three years after buying it, but remaining in the county, the couple then moved into a large property named Thiefside Cottage in the rural Cumbrian village of Calthwaite, where for all intents and purposes, what few neighbours the couple had considered at first that Shelley was Michael Hearn's daughter. So with his once affluent lifestyle now severely depleted due to his spending and his disastrous business decisions, the now virtually penniless Hearn found himself for a couple of years relying on unemployment benefits, before he got himself a caravan and installed a grill inside, from which he sold burgers and hot dogs parked in a lay-by beside the A6. Throughout the years that the couple had been up in Cumbria, Shelley had also continued indulging in short-term affairs with several other men, until finally, in September 1986, she had met someone who she quickly became serious about. Meeting at a local grass track motorcycle racing event, which Shelley had a great passion for, 27-year-old local tyre depot manager Harold Graham Martin was instantly drawn to the dark-haired attractive girl, and the couple's friendship soon turned into an affair. It was a bit of a whirlwind romance by all accounts, but a serious one, because by just four months after first meeting, Shelley had left Michael Hearn and had moved in with Harold. The couple then became engaged on New Year's Day 1987 and had their wedding booked for the 21st of May the following year. And to cap it all off, by June 1987, the then 25-year-old Shelley was expecting Harold's child. When news of his former lover's engagement reached him, Michael Hearn now knew that this younger lover who he'd given his all to, who he'd spent his last on, was gone from him for good, never to return to him as she had done before. The cottage that he'd bought for the both of them now seemed to be a cold and desolate place to him, 
its vibrant heart seemingly having been ripped out just as his had been when she'd left, and Hearn took to spending time alone there, shut away, brooding and nursing his broken heart and grief, trying desperately to overcome the agony of his lover leaving him. Now it can be a proper kind of pain that can't it, imagining the one you love with someone else, and I'm sure several of us can empathise there. But this time, this grief soon turned to bitterness, which became a seething desire for revenge. Unable to come to terms with the fact that he had no one to blame for his downfall except himself, all Hearn could think of was that he was approaching 60, was in the autumn of his life, and the one person he wanted to be with him was a girl more than half his age younger who still had her whole life ahead of her, and who, after leeching off him for 10 years, sucking him dry and treating him appallingly, Shelley had moved on, all set to be happier than she had ever been. Hearn blamed Shelley and her new lover, he couldn't even bring himself to call him her fiancé, for the fact that in the space of a decade, he'd had a reversal of fortune and gone from being a factory owner with a life of relative luxury, to eking out a meagre living selling burgers from a caravan in a lay-by off the A6. Even by that time long estranged from his daughter, who'd opted to return and live with her mother several years before, disapproving of the relationship her father was having with a former friend of hers. It lit a proper fire right under his arse this did, and his days became filled with Hearn thinking just how he could exact revenge. And on the evening of Thursday, October the 1st, 1987, Michael Hearn did just that. That evening, Shelley and Harold Martin had arrived at Thiefside Cottage to return Michael Hearn's car to him, after he'd contacted her to ask her new lover to put his car through its annual MOT. A gesture, he claimed, to show that he was fine with the both and had finally accepted that their relationship was over. As a result, perhaps feeling bad about the circumstances in which he and Shelley had gotten together, Harold had agreed to do this and had earlier that day collected the vehicle and had put it through its MOT, even correcting the various minor faults that it had to ensure that it would sail through. When they returned the vehicle to him, Shelley driving it back to her former home as she'd done so many times before, Hearn invited them both inside for tea, which they accepted, again as I've said, perhaps out of guilt, or perhaps thinking it was chance to put any animosity that may be felt behind the three of them. There was some forced yet polite conversation, and as soon as Hearn had left the sitting room, ostensibly to head to the kitchen to put the kettle on, Harold and Shelley glanced at each other, feeling the uncomfortable atmosphere. Once he too was out of sight of the couple, Hearn's true feelings came to the surface, for the sight of his former lover, who he was still of course very fixated upon, very obviously heavily pregnant by a new lover, sent him almost insane with fury. Bypassing the kitchen, he instead headed upstairs to the bedroom he and Shelley had formerly shared, where he lifted up the mattress of their former bed and removed his purchase of just a few days earlier. A double-barrel 12-bore shotgun, which Hearn then broke open and loaded both barrels with cartridges. Coming back down into the sitting room, all thoughts of tea and polite chats were off as Hearn then raised the weapon and pointed it directly at Shelley. Seconds seemed like an eternity 
with neither Shelley or Harold able to truly comprehend what they were seeing, until Hearn fired a single shot that hit Shelley in the stomach, knocking her backwards across the room and onto the floor. Immediately reacting, Harold launched himself across the room and fought with Hearn to get the gun from him, and after a protracted struggle, managed to wrestle the weapon away, it having broken open and the cartridges being ejected from it during the melee. Harold managed to throw the weapon outside and then ran and tried to get help from a neighbouring property. Returning to Thiefside Cottage to try and help his fiance, Harold was horrified to now see smoke billowing from the front door and made his way inside to find the horrific sight of Shelley ablaze from head to toe, lying halfway across the doorway leading into the hall from the sitting room. Heading immediately to the kitchen to get water to extinguish the flames, Harold was then attacked by a crazed Hearn who threw a petrol-soaked rag at him, setting his clothing immediately ablaze and causing the instantly severely burned Harold to stagger outside, where he rolled in the grass to extinguish the flames which had by that time severely burned his face, his neck and his upper body. When he'd extinguished the flames, his first thought was once again of Shelley and raising himself to his feet, he staggered back inside. But by this time, Hearn had not only horrifically set his gravely injured former lover ablaze, but the cottage also. Carlisle Fire Officer Cliff Harding, on his way home from work and still dressed in uniform, happened to be driving down the A6 at the time when he saw the cottage blazing. Immediately stopping to help, he rushed into the scene to find Hearn and Harold scuffling on the ground outside. Stopping the scuffle, Cliff managed to establish from the badly burned Harold that there was still someone inside the property, and so subsequently made a desperate attempt to drag Shelley's body out of the now fierce inferno. Cliff later recalled, I stopped the car on instinct. There were people standing outside the blazing cottage, but they weren't doing anything. They were just watching the two men fighting on the ground. I went up and stopped the fighting. I didn't grapple with them or anything, but when they saw me, they must have thought I was a policeman or something because I was still wearing my uniform. One of them was cut on the face and Mr. Martin was burned on both of his arms and his ears. I got hold of Hearn and put him into a car. I told him not to move and I told the man not to let him out of the car. I just went straight in. I didn't think about it at the time because I didn't know what was going on. On his way inside, Cliff had to step over the shotgun lying on the path as he attempted to force his way into the blazing cottage. He continued, I couldn't get her out. I got halfway along the corridor but couldn't get any further because the fire was round the ceiling and flames were rolling across the hall. She was lying halfway into the hall and I could see a lower half, but it was quite a severe blaze. As fire crews and an ambulance arrived at the scene, Hearn was taken to a nearby police station and detained, where a special late night sitting of Penrith's Magistrates Court was convened that evening to remand him in custody pending further inquiries. Harold Martin, meanwhile, was rushed to the specialist burns unit at Carlisle's Cumberland Infirmary, where his wounds could be tended. But the horror that he'd just lost his fiance and their unborn child at the scene of such carnage, in such horror, I mean, how would you even begin to try and get your head around such a thing? 
it's really the stuff of nightmares, that, isn't it? Michael Charles William Hearn's trial for the murder of Michelle Page began at Preston Crown Court on Wednesday the 27th of April 1988, presided over by Mr Justice McPherson, where he entered a plea of not guilty. Counsel for the prosecution, Bennett Heitner QC, began by outlining the background to the horrific murder, explaining the full tumultuous story from 1977 onwards, when the then 16-year-old Shelley had gone to live at his home in Rortonstall, through them becoming lovers, and how they'd bought their pig farm in the early 1980s, then that being a disaster and leading to them moving to Calthwaite in 1985. Shelley had then met Harold Martin in September of the following year, quickly leaving Hearn and moving in with Harold. Engagement had followed, and to cap off the new relationship, Shelley had discovered in June 1987 that she was pregnant which had left Michael Hearn to go postal. Proper Banzai. Describing the events of the night of the killing, Mr Heitner told the court how Hearn had blasted Shelley in the stomach from close range, just four feet, from a single shot fired from a shotgun that he'd bought for £100 just a few days earlier. Shocked, Mr Martin had wrestled the gun away from Hearn and thrown it outside, then gone to get help. When he'd returned, he'd found his fiancée alight and had rushed into the kitchen to get water in a vain attempt to save her life. Hearn then threw a petrol-soaked rag at him, which had set him alight, and after rushing outside to roll on the grass to extinguish the flames, Mr Martin had returned inside to find the house fiercely ablaze around Shelley, a blaze which severely damaged the cottage and had even spread to the adjoining property before it was brought under control and extinguished. The heat and smoke were unbearable and he had had to rush outside once again to take in lungfuls of air before once again trying to get in and reach Shelley, but in vain. Home office pathologist Dr Edmund Tapp, meanwhile, who'd performed the post-mortem on Shelley, told the court that an examination of her badly burned body revealed that she had inhaled smoke before death and so, despite the massive shotgun wound, was still alive when the fire had taken hold. He said that the most likely cause of death was the extensive burns that covered the entirety of her body, head to toe, whereas the one and a half inch in diameter shotgun wound in her abdomen would, have, would probably have proven fatal. There was a slim chance that if she could have been rushed to hospital and operated on by skilled surgeons within the hour, there was every chance that her life may have been saved. Instead, she had no chance of this, as was testified to by another forensic scientist, Philip Jones. He told the court that following a forensic examination of the remains of Shelley's clothing, each item tested had revealed traces of petrol upon them. Whilst Harold Martin was outside raising the alarm, Hearn had stood over the already gravely injured, immobilised pregnant woman and poured petrol over her, then set her alight. Stuff of nightmares indeed, that isn't it? Harold Martin then appeared in the witness box himself to give evidence. Fighting to keep his emotions in check, he told the court that Shelley had twice complained to him that Hearn had previously threatened to kill her when their relationship had first started, before Shelley had left Hearn, but with the couple by that time in separate bedrooms. 
Hearn had broken into her bedroom in the middle of the night and threatened, quite menacingly, to kill her unless she stopped seeing Harold. And then again in February of that year, when Hearn had come at her with a carving knife after Shelley had gone around to the property to collect some of her possessions. He then described in detail how he had witnessed his pregnant fiance shot by a former lover and left to die in her blazing former home. The court heard how on October the 1st of the previous year, Harold and Shelley had gone around to Thiefside Cottage to return Michael Hearn's car to him after Harold had worked on it and put it through its MOT. The three were talking in the sitting room of the bungalow, the atmosphere somewhat strained as we've said, when Hearn left the room saying he was going to make them a cup of tea. Harold described how whilst he was out of the room, he was stood by the fire cleaning his grimy fingernails with a penknife, when out of the corner of his eye he saw a flash, heard a loud bang and saw Shelley fall backwards to the floor. He turned around and saw Hearn standing in the doorway with a shotgun. Harold then grabbed the gun and pushed Hearn through the doorway, then backwards through a glass panel door that led to the porch. After a desperate struggle, in which he managed to hit Hearn several times, Harold managed to open the gun and eject the remaining cartridge from it, which he then threw outside. Inside the house, he could see Shelley lying on the floor, bleeding badly from a severe wound to the abdomen. She was appealing for help. She said she was dying, he told the court. On his way out to get help, he saw Hearn coming towards him, once again with a gun in his possession, which led to another struggle occurring, and once again, Harold managing to wrest the gun away from him, flinging it outside. He then made it to a neighbouring property where the alarm was raised, before heading back to Thiefside. Once back here, he saw smoke emanating from the property, and went inside to find Shelley had been set on fire. He told the court, she was burning from head to toe. Horrified, he went into the kitchen to get water to extinguish his blazing fiancé, but when he returned, Hearn threw the petrol-soaked rag at him, which set his own clothes on fire. After making his way outside and rolling in the grass to put these flames out, he tried to get back in once again, but was driven back by the inferno, and he and Hearn then began fighting once again outside, only being separated by a passing fire officer. As we said, by all accounts, several neighbours were at the time stood watching the terrifying scene, having been brought out by the sound of the earlier gunshot, yet none of them had attempted to intervene. On the second day of the trial, Michael Hearn himself took his place in the witness box to give evidence on his own behalf. He told the jury that, Far from intending to kill his ex-lover of nine years, he'd actually bought the shotgun as a birthday present for his daughter, and on the evening of October the 1st the previous year, had only actually planned to frighten Shelley by trying to shoot himself in front of her. He had actually attempted suicide with it the previous day, he told the court, but the gun had failed to fire. He then outlined how Shelley and her fiancé had arrived to return his car, which he'd asked Mr Martin to repair for him, and indeed claimed that this was a gesture to show the couple that he didn't wish to cause any further problems for them. However, he was under the impression that Shelley was unhappy in her new relationship, because Mr Martin was becoming possessive towards her because of him, 
and further claimed that Mr. Martin had replied that he was fed up with Shelley having to run round after him. Hearn had then left the room. He accepted that he must have gone upstairs and got a double barrel shotgun, which was underneath the mattress in his bedroom, and had loaded it, but claimed that he could not clearly remember what had happened following this, telling the court, I never intended to shoot her. I loved Shelley, and she loved me. I don't remember coming to the open door of the sitting room, and I don't remember the gun firing. I didn't consciously squeeze the trigger. The first thing I knew it was Shelley saying that she'd been shot and to get an ambulance. Under cross-examination from the prosecution, Hearn agreed with Mr. Heitner that nobody other than himself could have shot Shelley, who then asked him, In these circumstances, you must have intended to kill or seriously wound Shelley. Hearn replied, That I'm aware of? No. He was then asked why he'd struggled with Mr. Martin and had hung on to the shotgun following the shooting, responding, I never heard the gun go off. I don't know why I held on to the gun. Hearn also claimed not to know why he hadn't called for an ambulance following the shooting, but emphatically denied it when Mr. Heitner dismissed the claim that he'd intended taking his own life by self-immolation. He told Hearn, When you realised that you wouldn't get her back, you decided that no one else was going to have her either. You first shot her and then burned her to death. Hearn simply replied, No, sir. Hearn then continued that following the shooting, he vaguely remembered an enraged Harold Martin coming at him, swearing and with his fists flailing, knocking him backwards through the glass panel of his porch door. He continued, I vaguely remember getting the petrol can from the boot of the car which was parked right outside the front door. I was going to destroy myself with the petrol, but I didn't get the chance to. I was going to pour petrol all over the settee and sit in it and light myself on fire. Shelley was at the far end of the room. She wasn't shouting or screaming, and I remember saying to Shelley, I love you, I'm going. I sprinkled the petrol on the settee, and there was a whoosh. There was an open coal fire a short distance from the settee, and as far as I know, I was blown through the window. The next thing I remember, I was in the middle of the garden. Hearn told the court that even though Shelley was at the time engaged to Mr. Martin, and indeed was pregnant with his child, he still harboured hopes that she would one day return to him, telling the court that she'd confided to him only some weeks before the shooting that the first time Mr. Martin could not afford to buy her whatever she wanted, she would leave him and return back to Thiefside, because he had always bought Shelley whatever she wanted. Psychiatrist Dr. Marion Swan, an expert appointed by the Crown, told the court that Hearn had more personality defects than most people, but without further investigation, she could not say if he had an established personality disorder. It was her medical opinion that he did not suffer from an abnormality of the mind, and she saw no evidence that his responsibility for his actions was impaired by any mental disorder. However, a defence-appointed psychiatrist, Dr Colin Prothero, indicated to the court that Hearn was suffering from a personality disorder, claiming that Hearn was a self-opinionated, egocentric man who would have found his riches to rags fall from being an affluent factory owner 
to a hand-to-mouth existence selling hamburgers, an extremely traumatic one. Further, he was an extremely possessive and irritable man who, when provoked, experienced high degrees of emotion and a tendency to lose control. Dr. Prothero said that he had interviewed Hearn on three occasions during his remand period, and each time had found difficulty in getting any kind of straight answers from him. He told the court, Sometimes he would become extremely angry with me if I repeated something I understood he had said and he disagreed with. On a number of occasions, we discussed the associations that Shelley had had with a number of men, and his reaction was one of extreme anger and emotion. Immediately, he would break down and cry, and almost begged me not to say anything undesirable about her. I think I had on one occasion suggested something about his early relationship with Shelley, and he shouted at me and ordered me out of the room. I see Mr. Hearn as having certain personality traits which amount to a personality disorder. He had a predisposition to behave in an excessive manner when under any stress. Dr. Prothero continued to the court that Hearn was prone to hysterical reaction under stress and could quite easily have lost all control on the night that Shelley had died. No shit, eh? At the end of the four-day trial, on Monday the 2nd of May 1988, the jury found Michael Hearn guilty of murder by a majority verdict and he was sentenced to the mandatory term of life imprisonment. He was to serve just over five years incarceration of this life sentence before he died of natural causes at Ranby Prison in Nottinghamshire on the 21st of July 1993, aged 65. Rebuilt today, Thiefside Cottage had been named so because the road that it stands on, right at the junction where Calthwaite meets the A6, was at one time a favoured haunt of highwaymen who used to ambush coaches there to steal from them. It being a particularly good spot to do so due to its ruralness, the woodland and sparsely inhabited countryside surrounding it making any escape easy. Once it had been established that so synonymous with highwaymen had the area become that it became known as Thiefside, sentries had actually been posted there, and any highwayman caught would find himself, once tried for his crimes, executed on an unofficial gallows, which was usually a bloody big tree branch, to the east of the village of Calthwaite. But the name stuck in the area and it still remains today in Calthwaite, and following the grisly crime that I've just described, only very shortly after the murder, Thiefside once again lived up to its name, as the badly damaged Thiefside cottage was broken into and looted by all accounts by ghouls eager to get themselves mementos and souvenirs of the crime, as well as people living in the area being bothered constantly by macabre sightseers and rubberneckers, anxious to see where such horror had taken place. Now I can't really say anything there without sounding a hypocrite, seeing as I've several times over the course of doing the show done the exact same thing myself. I don't think I'd take bloody souvenirs though, it is a bit morbid that isn't it? and any visits would be purely for the purposes of researching for an episode completely. Nowadays, you can rubberneck from the comfort of your own home anyway through Google Street View, and a view of Thiefside Cottage from which I have placed in the episode show notes for you guys to have a look at also. Now, I very nearly titled the episode The Things We Do For Love, 
but I couldn't ignore the same surnames of killers in each tale, and I always tried to come up with a catchy sounding title, so it became Spurned Hearns. Now both of these crimes, love is the key to them. I'm going to try and get a song title of my beloved charlatans into episodes going forward, so boom, there's your first one. But it really does seem to be the key here, because however misplaced or twisted it seems to you and I, it was love that both Ronald and Michael Hearn felt that ultimately led them to commit such horror. And these are both horrific crimes, aren't they? With no mistake there. One, because although his former lover claimed to have spurned him, he wasn't having that and instead saw someone stood in his way. And the other, because she definitely spurned him. And if he couldn't have her, then nobody else was going to either. But deliberately luring a man to his death, brutally beating him with a large block of concrete and then setting him on fire, all because you want his wife, or shooting a pregnant woman and then immolating her because you can't accept that she doesn't want you anymore. What kind of love is that? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the episode Spurned Hearns, which you can do so in the episode thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group or by getting in touch with me to do so through any of the show's social media links. I'm sure that you know how to get in touch with me by now anyway, and please feel free to do so. So, I reckon another standalone case to come before we delve into this series arc, which is coming next time around then, and which I've already mostly written. The latest Patreon episode will also be out in a few days as well, just as soon as I figure out what the hell I'm going to cover for it, There isn't enough hours in the day for me at the moment, I tell you. With that, it's about wrap-up time here on The Enthusiast for this time around, and I'm off to get myself neck deep in some more true crime, ready for another tale for you. I thank each of you very kindly for joining me here today. It's always eight of you to do so, as I said before. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, As ever, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.